Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Laszlo Montgomery yet again. China History Podcast. The History of China-Vietnam Relations, Part 2 this time. Last episode, we flew higher than an SR-71 over the landscape, taking in the earliest centuries of Vietnamese history, the Hong Bang Dynasty, the emergence of Ao Lạc and the Lạc people, the arrival of the Qin armies, the establishment of a fort or commandery, a Jun, to control the region for imperial China. Then the Qin fell, which led to the rise of Zhao Tuo, Jiu Da, and the establishment of the Nanyue, Nam Viet Kingdom. And for the first time, the Red River Delta region gets a fully loaded adult dosage of Chinese culture. The Jiu Dynasty of Nanyue fell to the mighty Han, 111 BCE, and for the first time, the Vietnamese people fall under China's thumb during this first period of Chinese domination. 111 BCE marks the commencement of the Bak Tuk. There's a momentary breath of fresh air with the Jung sisters who shake off Han rule in 40 CE, but this is over in a few short years. And the Chinese return for the second time to reassert themselves over this land that today comprises only the northernmost portion of today's Socialist Republic of Vietnam. From almost the city of Hue, north to the China border. And this is where we shall return to our story. Last time we looked at Zhao Tuo, a man who hailed originally from Hebei, Zhao State. This time we look at Shi Xie, a Han Chinese with roots in Shandong, but who was born six generations deep into the world of Zhao province, Zhao Zhou, born and raised in Vietnam. The Vietnamese know Shi Xie as Si Nhi and also as Si Vung, King Si. He lived 137 to 226, early Han to early Three Kingdoms period in China. The record of the Three Kingdoms, the San Guo Zhi, is where we get most of the skinny on Shi Xie. Being sixth generation Zhao Zhi and all, he came from a very respected and influential family. Shi Xie had a classical upbringing, studying in Luoyang, the eastern Han capital, going through the whole classical scholar-official routine. We remember Shi Xie for his long stint serving as administrator of Jiaozhi, one of the commanderies of Jiao province, beginning in 177. He was the Jiaozhi Taishou. A, a Taishou is an, is an archaic term for the head of a prefecture. He's famous for designing this 
architecture, for the way he governed Jiao, whereby all the best of Chinese culture that was applicable to this faraway region could be integrated into the indigenous Red River Delta cultures. He carried forward a lot of what had begun under Zhao Tuo. It was Shixie who had moved the old Nanyue capital from Panyu to Longbin on the Red River, today part of Hanoi, located right at the fork in the river where the Red and Dung rivers join. Very quickly, this became a thriving trade center and a mini Chang'an in its own right. It always begins with trade. It created an economy, and then everything quickly sprung up in its wake. By 177, the Eastern Han was going downhill with a stiff wind at its back, hopelessly in the clutches of the eunuchs the later emperors had invited into their government. This was the time of Eastern Han Emperor Ling, Han Ling Di, and the events leading up to the Yellow Turban Rebellion. His son, who succeeded him to the Han throne, was the one poisoned by Dong Zhuo. As mentioned in past CHP episodes, this was the bitter end of the once magnificent Han dynasty. First Dong Zhuo, then Cao Cao, then it's over and it's three kingdoms time. So with everything up north tangled up in this state of affairs, no one was minding Shuxia down in Jiaozhi. And he began to transform from loyal official to local warlord. All the key positions in the administration were given to his relatives and allies. As I said, he was referred to by the local people as Si Vung, King Si. He was a very enlightened ruler and kept the place running smoothly and did a lot to promote Buddhism in Vietnam. Even before it really caught on in China, Confucianism had a serious golden age during the early Han Dynasty, and this philosophy got indelibly written into the source code of Chinese government and administration that lasted all the way into the 20th century. Between 187 and 226, the lands administered by Shixie had been left to their own devices as the Eastern Han was locked in this dynasty-ending struggle. Scholars and educated elites from the North who had lost confidence amidst the growing chaos had beaten a path to the south and to these lands in the southernmost reaches of China and into the Red River Delta region. They brought Confucianism and other northern learning. And during the time of Shishia, it really takes hold, especially among the Sinicized Vietnamese elites. No surprises there. But as the Eastern Han descended into further instability, because of his position down in Jiaozhou, Shishia was courted aggressively by the various contending powers who hoped to win him over to their side. These were Cao Cao, who had the Han Emperor in his clutches, and in the east of China was the Kingdom of Eastern Wu, led by Sun Quan, and there was also Liu Biao in Jing Province, Hubei, all trying to woo Shixie. Cao Cao had showered Shixie with titles and paid him incredible honors to win him over to his side. It was a very complicated period of maneuvering and playing everyone off against one another. But suffice to say, Shixie threw his lot in with Sun Quan of the Eastern Wu. He had done Sun Quan a major solid in helping him score a strategic victory over Liu Bei uh, and his Shu Han forces, you know, something he was amply rewarded for. Shixie and Zhao Tuo parted ways as far as how they each viewed China. Zhao Tuo had no problem breaking away and declaring himself independent. Shixie 
stuck with China till the end. He could have pulled off a Zhao Tuo by declaring the former Nanyue region independent, but that never happened. So Shi Xie had become very powerful down in this part of the world, Guangdong, Guangxi, and northern Vietnam. Because he controlled these lands, he controlled those unimaginable riches traded at those ports where the Pearl and Red Rivers both empty out into their respective corner of the sea. And as long as Shi Xie was alive, Sun Quan stayed true to his commitment not to ever move on him. But after Shi Xie breathed his last, after a nice long run, dying at 89 years of age and 226, all bets were off. And we'll get to that. When he finally did pass, a kind of cult grew around his memory. University of Hawaii professor Stephen O'Hara called Shi Xie, quote, the first Vietnamese. Right around this time, there will suddenly appear a new player in this history. This all began while all these end-of-Han antics were happening in the north. One of the tribal leaders, based in Wei, son of a high-up Viet official, killed the Chinese imperial magistrate there and seized one of the counties that was part of the Zhunan commandery, the southernmost one in Zhao province. And this rebel, who broke away from this China-controlled land, set up a long-lasting independent kingdom called Lin Yi, Lam Up in Vietnamese. So Lin Yi enters the picture, and they have their great moment in history. Now, even though Lin Yi had broken away in 192, this renegade kingdom still maintained relations with China. Lin Yi, by the way, was one of the great traitors in Rhino Horn. Already, so early in the game, the rhinoceros was dodging humans. Around this time, down in the Mekong Delta, the Khmer civilization is now starting to ramp up. During the 240s, Chinese envoys will make it that far south for the first time, visiting the kingdom that they called Funan. It's probably a Khmer civilization. It was a trading center already with a long history. And the people in Funan were great shipbuilders and even built ships that attacked other places in Southeast Asia. The Indians also sent some kind of trade mission to Funan that was actually present during the same time as, the, uh, as a uh, Chinese trade mission. And it was there in Funan during the mid-third century that Chinese and Indians got to have a kind of interaction for the first time. The kingdom of Funan pivoted in the direction of India rather than China, but they sent six missions to China in the third century and continued this for a couple centuries. They were Hindus more than anything else. Lin Yi, Champa, Funan, the Khmers, Lao. This was the world that surrounded the northern Vietnam lands. And alliances were made and broken, and it was an endless on-and-off warfare and a heck of a lot of commerce. Funan will later be conquered in the 630s, and once that happens, you don't hear about them any further in the Chinese record. Following the demise of Funan, the Mekong Delta region will later be called Chenla, Chenla uh, in Chinese, but only in the official Chinese history. Chenla expanded north and west into Cambodia for pretty much all of this early history. When you talk about the Mekong Delta region and along the Mekong River, that's more Khmer than Vietnamese history. Well, it's not a pretty ending, but once Shi Xie passes from the scene, 
Sun Quan wasted no time to fill that formidable power vacuum. As I said, the entire government was stuffed with Shi Xie's relatives, and everyone had always been beholden to him. So without going into the gory details, the only way Sun Quan thought he was ever going to be able to take over the place was to decimate Shi Xie's family, every last one of them, as well as his closest supporters. If Eastern Wu was ever going to enjoy the benefits of that exploding maritime Silk Road trade that flowed in and out of the Gulf of Tonkin where the Red River emptied out, they had to move in fast and hard. The Eastern Wu Kingdom hung in there in China until 280, so they got to gorge themselves on all the riches in northern Vietnam, not to mention the two Guangs, Guangdong and Guangxi. It was here under the rule of Eastern Wu in 226 that Guangdong got itself detached from Jiaozhou and was made a province in its own right. And then the rump Jiaozhou province will contain only southern Guangxi and northern Vietnam. In a word, the Eastern Wu rule was not very popular with the locals. But they did have their Buddhism. As I said, it came to Vietnam first by sea before it had come to China. It thrived under Shixia and had only kept getting more popular. The closer you got to the border with China, Mahayana Buddhism held sway, but in the south, it was still the Indian Theravada school of Buddhism that was dominant. Although Buddhism itself came along in the late Western Zhou dynasty, it doesn't really hit the big time in China until the Nanbei Chao, the southern northern dynasty's period, and of course the Sui, late 6th, early 7th century. The most notable legends or bit of history that comes from this very violent Eastern Wu occupation of Viet Lands concerns the Lady Jiu. She's known as Jiu Ti Jun and also as Ba Jiu. She lived from 225 to 248. The Vietnamese version of her life and deeds differs tremendously from the Chinese official record, which passed her off as just another local rabble-rouser who rose up against the Wu occupiers and was then promptly put down. She and the Jung sisters share a similar status as far as what their deeds symbolized, trying to free the country from Chinese rule. History books have compared her to Joan of Arc. She's called the Vietnamese Joan of Arc in a lot of books. According to the legend, she fought in battle mounted on a war elephant wearing golden armor, and she put up a Noble resistance against the unpleasant Eastern Wu occupation, but in the end, Wu forces snuffed out her uprising. But Ba Chu lives on in Vietnamese legends. In the year 263, the kingdom of Wei defeated Shu Han. Now there were only two of the three kingdoms remaining. The combined Wei and Shu entities became the, the Jin, the Western Jin, that is. And as soon as the Three Kingdoms period winds down and Sima Yen is secure on the throne, local Viet leaders went straight to the new Jin dynasty court to make peace with them in order to rid themselves of the Wu invaders who still occupied them. The Jin sent down a governor and seven military commanders and soldiers to establish a regime in northern Vietnam to challenge Wu down there. For three years, Jin and Wu fought it out for control of the Red River Valley. But after Wu General Tao Huang hijacked a load of Jin treasure destined to aid the local resistance in Vietnam and presented this captured loot to local officials as a bribe, 
uh, the locals, turned on Jin and wiped them out. And Wu continued to control northern Vietnam, with Tao Huang in charge until the end of the 3rd century. Let's not get bogged down here. 280, well, Jin, of course, conquers Wu. That's the end of the Three Kingdoms period. And the Jin rulers left Tao Huang alone down in the Red River Valley. Like Shi Xie, Tao Huang is also credited with leaving an indelible mark on the administrative and government structure down in Jiao. It lasted for centuries. As we know, it didn't take that long before the Jin dynasty started breaking down. This is going to have a profound impact on China, especially in the south of China, where, beginning around 310, 320, a massive migration happens after the fall of the western Jin. This is the migration, you may recall, that first brought the Hakka people south. Once the eastern Jin was all formed and had stabilized, they sent forces down to the Red River Valley to go reassert control, and they put all their proxies in place, you know, all Han Chinese families who took over the place. I mean, it, it happened time and again. Whenever things got hairy up in the north and political power was transitioning from one center to the next in China, affairs down in Zhao province were left in local hands. With all the distractions in the north of China, it didn't take long for warlordism to develop with Powerful, vested interests, always trying to show their independence and brazenly resist changes or influence from the north, from China. And the Eastern Jin took a while before they finally fell. The upshot was, as we know from CHP episodes of the past, was the emergence of the first of the southern dynasties, established by Liu Yu. This becomes known as the Liu Song. Not the most famous of the dynasties, but with respect to China-Vietnam history, eh, it was a good time. When the Liu Song was established in 420, Vietnam was in its 377th year of domination by China. Remember, the first period of Chinese domination began in 111 BCE with Zhao Tuo's defeat of Aulak. The Zhong sisters put an end to that, but the two sisters' star did not burn bright for long, and they were gone by 43 and then the second era of Chinese domination began. And here in the year 420, with the establishment of the Liu Song dynasty, Vietnam, as I said, was now in its 377th year. Still not an independent nation. The waves of northern Chinese who made their way to Zhao province following the fall of the Jin brought more of the best 5th century China had to offer in agriculture, art, literature, and science. Trade up and down the Red River boomed. Things had been quite stable in Jiao during the Eastern Jin and Liu Song. The Liu Song rulers in Jiankang, today's Nanjing, kept the same powerful families in power in Jiao as the Eastern Jin. They didn't want to repeat what uh, Sun Quan did. There was a new threat to the south of Jiao province that involved a constant battle with invading forces from Lin Yi, Lam Up. This was a new power center that was located near the central part of Vietnam, based in Wei. The southernmost presence for China in Vietnam was still the Jinan Commandery, called Nam, present-day Guangben and Binden provinces, bordering Lin Yi to the north. They were always under attack from invading forces from next door in Lin Yi. To deal with this, in 443, the Song Emperor Wen sent an army south, rather than do what the Eastern Jin had done before, you know, relying on local warlord armies to do their bidding. 
doing it this way, the Liu Song didn't have any loyalty issues. These were Chinese troops this time. By 446, they were able to neutralize Lin Yi as a military threat to their southernmost region of Zhao province. Lin Yi, however, was not vanquished, and the place continued on as a trading mart for the Southeast Asia region. The kingdom of Lin Yi, Lam Ap, still had until 793 before they are mentioned for the last time in the Chinese record. So anyway, the Liu Song, they fell in 479 and were replaced by the Southern Qi, 479 to 502, second of the Southern dynasties. And they were locked in a constant battle their whole time in power. And matters down in Jiao continued to grow and develop while things up north remained in a state of flux. But during this whole Nanbei Chao, Southern Northern Dynasties period of 420 to 589, the Chinese who had come down to govern and populate Jiaozhi since the end of the Jin, were beginning to adapt their Chinese ways to local sensibilities. Initially, the Chinese had walked in and set up all these institutions down in Vietnam and brought in that Chinese cookie cutter and built up Jiao province in their image. Well, that was then. Now, these China elites, going back to Xixia's time and even earlier, after making their contributions, showing the local Vietnamese down there how to do it, they were more and more being pushed aside as the indigenous population began reshaping all this sinicization more in their image and to their liking. And a good amount of this non-Han Chinese, non-Viet culture developing south of Jiao in Lin Yi and Funan had plenty of opportunities and time to co-mingle with what was currently developing in Jiaozhi, Zhen, and Runan, the three areas of Jiao province that were shaping the Viet people who lived in and around northern Vietnam. By this Nanbei Chao, northern-southern dynasties period, China faced three challenges in Jiao. One, Sinicized local Vietnamese elites who had their own ideas about what was best for everyone down there. Two, indigenous people from the fringes of the Red River Plain who were not exposed or not impressed with Chinese culture and you know, who didn't want these Han Chinese lording it over them. You know, the further you strayed from the core areas around present-day Hanoi, the less sinicized they were. And the third headache that the Chinese had to deal with was the persistent armies from the west of Zhou and to the south. Let me quote Ben Kiernan here. Over the ensuing centuries, Zhou's population adopted more of the northern culture and systems of government. They would also come to regard it as their own, adapt it to local conditions, and meld it with surviving indigenous traditions and with what they learned through contacts with their Indianized southern neighbors, Lin Yi, Funan, and Champa. End quote. And while China was distracted with all the instability and wars of the Nanbei Chao period, this was Vietnam's chance to bake in the oven relatively undisturbed and take stock of all the influx of new ideas, sciences, literature, and immigrants from China, and the ripple effects of the growth in foreign trade and the wealth it brought into the economy. The interaction with Funan, all the way in the south of Vietnam by the Mekong Delta, really heated up during the Liang Dynasty. This southern and northern dynasties period wasn't the most peaceful time in Chinese history, 
But the reign of the Liang Emperor Wu, 502-549, was a mostly peaceful and prosperous time. He was one of those occasional Chinese emperors who became champions of Buddhism. In these cases, when an enthusiastic Buddhist emperor sat on the throne, the religion was given a platform to thrive like never before. It happened with the Taoists and Confucianists when they, you know, had a leg up on the opposition. And in Funan, way down in the south, around the Mekong, were many of the raw materials required in the Buddhist accoutrement business. And this resulted in a brisk trade between Liang China and those lands far in the south, not yet part of Vietnam. The Liang gets split up between the Southern Liang and the Western Liang that began around 557 after the establishment of the last of the Southern dynasties, the Chen. But don't confuse this Western Liang with the Western Liang of the Sixteen Kingdoms period uh, from 400 to 421. The Western or later Liang, uh, let's not get too worried about this one. There's something like three of them. What's important to our story is that while powerful armies were pounding each other for control of China, another hero from Vietnam history rose to the fore. Not for long, but long enough. His name was Li Bom. Li Ben in Chinese. He led a revolt against the occupation of Jiao by the Liang Dynasty. Li Bom is better known as Li Bi, and even better known as Li Nam De. Nam De means Southern Emperor. He came from Baiyue people who had migrated to Jiao a while back during the Wangmang time. Uh, in between the Hans, 9 to 23 CE. And he served as an official down in Jiao. And then besides serving as a government official, he later also served in a military capacity. Li Bi was like Zhao Tuo in that he was a Chinese official serving in Jiao who threw his lot in with the local Viets and then turned on the Chinese, in this case, the Liang Dynasty. Starting in 541, he organized an uprising against the Liang administration and military and spent the next decade trying to eradicate Zhao of any Liang Chinese presence. After his work was done, Li Bi declared independence from China and set up a kingdom that lasted for 60 years. And here, in the 6th century, the 500s, is where the Vietnam nation and people start to galvanize into a kind of political entity, not yet a national one. Then, in 544, Li Bi, after ridding Zhao province of any Liang presence, proclaimed himself, in a nod to Zhao Tuo, perhaps, Emperor of Nanyue, and he named his new realm Vang Sun, or Wan Chun in Mandarin, 10,000 springs, as in the season Li Bi declared himself the Nam De, or Southern Emperor. He set up the capital at Laombin, the Hanoi area. And once again, the imperial court in Nanjing looked to the south with derision, fuming that these Viet subjects down in Jiao province dared to put their ruler and his Nam De title on equal footing as the Son of Heaven. Well, China did not go quietly and had every intention of returning one day to take back this province. So the new Van Sun Guk, or Kingdom of Van Sun, had to continue to be vigilant against any Liang attempts to make a comeback. And Champa, to their south, well, they were on the up and up and saw an opportunity with perceived instability up near Hanoi. 
and promptly allied their emerging kingdom with China against Vang Sun. Li Namde ruled a short time from 544 to 548, and he's called the founder of the Li dynasty. And because later on in Vietnamese history, there'll be another Li dynasty. This one's called the early or former Li. October 544, Liang indeed returned, this time with a mega force of 120,000 troops, led by the able general Chen Baxian, Zheng Ba-Din. Many of you remember from previous CHP episodes, Chen Baxian was going to later on found the Chen dynasty. But for now, he was a powerful general of the Liang. Two previous attempts to overpower the Vang Sun forces had failed. But for this third military campaign, Liang China was determined to win back this lost province. Chen Baxian's forces were indeed successful in this attempt. In the beginning, at least, they dislodged the Vang Sun government from Longbin, part of Hanoi. Li Namde had abandoned the capital and led his government and army in the general direction of Laos. The Lao people there, well, they had allied themselves with China, so the Vang Sun forces found no relief out west. And there in the hills and mountains of present-day Laos is where Li Namde perished in April 548 from disease. A one-time emperor and now a hunted man who was on the run and trying to rally his forces against the Chinese invaders. The second emperor who succeeded Li Namde was not a Li, but a Jiu. He was known as Jiu Viet Vung, Zhao Yue Wang. He's credited with taking over from Li Namde and putting up a stiff resistance and ultimately driving the Chinese out of Van Sun in 550. He was the son of a trusted military commander and confidant of Li Nam De, Zhu Viet Vung, which translates to Zhao Viet King. He was also known as Zhu Guang Fu or Zhao Guang Fu in uh, Chinese. He co-ruled the Li Dynasty kingdom with Li Nam De's son, who was still not yet ripe and untested. Vong Wen Gap, one of the greatest generals of his age, we'll get to him in the final episode. He had said once that he drew his inspiration from Zhu Guangfuk, who mastered these guerrilla tactics that the Liang army could not defeat. Chen Baxian had to leave the fight in Jiao to head north and deal with other pressing issues for the Liang dynasty. So no unified China still. Things are up in the air until the Sui emerged victorious in the north in 581. Incidentally, it was around this time, 6th century, that the Vietnamese language, still evolving, adopted tones and became a tonal language. Prior to this, the proto-Vietnamese language didn't use tones. There were three in the beginning and three added later after the Tang. Like Chinese, Vietnamese became a monosyllabic tonal language. And for the entirety of his reign, 548 to 571, Zhu Viet Vong had to put up with backstabbing Lee family elements in the government. And this made things less than stable in Chiao. Because he was a Jew and not a Lee, he always had to watch his back. The kingdom of Van Sun, also known as the early Lee dynasty, finally allowed the political backbiting in the capital to get the best of them. And by the time of the final Lee emperor, they were ripe for the taking. 
All the warring during the Liang Dynasty took its toll, and they were replaced with the last of the four southern dynasties. And this was the Chen. Again, not very long-lasting. They tried to tame Jiao, but to no avail. In the end, one of their own, Yang Jin, turned on the Chen dynasty in the south, and then the northern Zhou, the last of the northern dynasties, and relegates these two to the dust heap of Chinese history. He then went on to unify China and found a new dynasty. And this new dynasty was the short-lived Sui, and Yang Jin became the founding emperor, Sui Wendi. When he was ready in 602, this most capable of China's emperors sent a massive military force south, led by General Liu Fang, to go attack Van Sun. This was the start of the Sui Li War. And with that, the year 603 marks the start of the third period of Chinese domination of Vietnam. General Liu Fang, for his troubles in leading the Sui to victory, was made the viceroy of Jiao province. He'll end up dying later on in a campaign against Champa in the south. Lin Yi, the former Jiao lands that broke away in 192 and became an independent kingdom, were also overwhelmed by this Sui invasion. They found themselves in Sui Wendi's crosshairs when they dared to stop paying tribute. Sui forces landed near present-day Danang and sacked the Lin Yi capital, carting away the wealth of that kingdom back to the north. Not soon after getting whooped by the Sui army, Lin Yi will begin to fade away, and those lands will be taken over by the Chams and incorporated into the rising Champa kingdom. The early Li dynasty, short-lasting though it was, gave the Vietnamese people pride in that it showed China, as powerful and mighty as that empire was, wasn't so powerful and that they couldn't be taken on. The Vietnamese didn't get rid of them for good, but they proved it could be done. It happened before, and it would happen again and again in the future. Whenever China was distracted by internal political strife or invasion from the north, the Vietnamese would always seize the opportunity to rise up and try to free themselves from the Chinese yoke. After the Sui tamed Vietnam, it was still called Zhao Zhou, Zhao Province. That name had staying power. Vietnam at this point, early 7th century, is still only in the north, centered around Hanoi. The Sui wasn't very long-lasting, and although they rolled into Vietnam and took the place over, they had their own troubles in the north. After a period of instability, the dynasty was toppled, and that cleared the way for the Tang dynasty. The Tang rulers will go down, assume control of Zhaozhou, and then they proceeded to run it like a colony. The period of Tang Dynasty domination of Vietnam will be marked by three major revolts that happened between 722 and 728. Despite all internal unrest and fighting at the edges of the province, it was still quite a golden time in Vietnam, just as it was in the north in Tang China. Zhao Zhou got a sort of rebranding in 679 when the Tang rulers set it up as a protectorate. The government had set up a number of these protectorates around the fringes of their Chinese Tang Empire, including in Vietnam. This one was called the Protectorate of Annam, or in Chinese, the Annan Du Hufu. Annan in Chinese means peaceful south. 
and the government seat was set up at a place called Tongbin or Songping. This was the site of the old Liosong capital during their time in charge. It was located on the south bank of the Red River near present-day Hanoi, of course. Up in Tang, China, even though the state religion was Taoism, it was another great period for the spread of Confucianism around the Jiaozhou region. The Tang Dynasty was a period that saw Chinese culture and learning spread far and wide to all parts of the world that were accessible via the Silk Roads and the Maritime Silk Road. Down in the new protectorate of Annam, this was especially so. The Tang was another unavoidable period in Vietnam's history where a big tidal wave of Chinese cultural influence came passing through the region. Buddhism had been riding an unprecedented wave of popularity in Vietnam and China ever since the Northern and Southern Dynasties period. The religion got a major boost during the Sui, and now, in Tang, China, there were Buddhist monks all over the place, from all parts of Asia. Chan Buddhism, that took off in China during the 6th century, was very much embraced in Jiao. In Japanese, this is called Zen Buddhism. Vietnamese called it Tian Dong. It was during the Tang Dynasty that Champa, down in the south, began its rise to serious power. They ended up being the immediate beneficiaries of the demise of Lin Yi. Champa consisted of a chain of Cham-speaking port states on the central coast of Vietnam. The Cham language was of the Austronesian family, Malayo-Polynesian, if you want to break it down further. They weren't Viet, nor were they Chinese. In 657, during the reign of the third Tang Emperor Gaozong, Chinese sources first mention these people from Zhanpo, based mostly in Guangnam province. As I mentioned, from the 6th to the 10th centuries, there were a number of anti-Tang rebellions in Annam. The big ones happened in 687, 770, and 791, and continued on well into the 800s. Yet, despite all this unrest, economically and politically, it was a rather peaceful and thriving time down there. A new threat arose in the mid-8th century in southwest China, mostly around Yunnan. This was a collection of tribes, each with its own mini-kingdom. These kingdoms were each called a Zhao, and in 737, all these Zhaos combined to form a new power center in the southwest called the Nan Zhao Kingdom, based near Dali in uh, Yunnan. Still not clear who these people were, but ethnic minorities of southwest China, or maybe more from Thailand. They made themselves enemies of the Tang in no time at all, rapidly expanding as far west as Burma and into southwest China, even capturing Chengdu for a brief time. In early 863, Nan Chao and Man forces attacked Dai La, another name for Hanoi, the capital of Annam. Heavy damage was inflicted by Nan Chao on the Tang and Nam forces. Zhao Zhou soon fell to these combined forces. Chinese loyalists, mostly Viet Sinicized elites, you know, who were related to all the Chinese who had been migrating to Vietnam ever since the Qin days, began fleeing north for safety. Zhao had always been a place to flee to. Now people were heading in the opposite direction. But 865, even as the Tang dynasty was in 
desperate straits politically, they still managed to take back Daila, the uh, capital, and defeated the rebels. By 937, the Nanchao kingdom fizzled out and gave way to the kingdom of Dali. By the late 9th century, the Tang dynasty was on its way out, and had been for a long time. And with their waning power went their influence and effectiveness down in Annam. After the Tang dynasty officially falls in 907, China is broken up again, just like before during the northern and southern dynasties period. But this post-Tang era is known as the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period. Wu Dai Shi Guo. Five dynasties in the north and ten kingdoms in the south. Just China convulsed from 907 to 960. But as history teaches us time and again, one nation's loss is another nation's opportunity. What happened next in China-Vietnam relations? Hold that thought until next time. We're going to insert the bookmark right here and pick up next episode with the events that followed the fall of the tongue. It's funny, here I was months ago thinking I could get this whole topic covered in a single long-winded episode. My verbosity, once again, grossly underestimated. This may go to four, and if I wander off on too many tangents, maybe even five episodes. All the terms and whatnot from this episode, English, Pinyin, Vietnamese, Chinese, all sitting on the website at teacup.media for this episode. Those names are tough, I know. I made it easy for you. Go check that out if you're so inclined. Okay, me little beauties. Laszlo Montgomery bidding you a fond farewell for this time. I'll be back again. Same bat time, same bat channel for another loquacious episode of the China History Podcast.